I don't really have a plan here. I have about a hundred words of notes and the heading of this particular notes file is a question mark. So we'll see how we go. Don't give your love, just give a smile now. Step back. Step back a little, fall in love. Step back a little. There were a number of loose threads, I think, that were left after my conversation with Ken Bolton last week. I love it when I get to put out an interview that I'm just, that I wish existed. And that was one of those. But there were a few things that I thought might be worth following up on. A few presences in the conversation that could do with revisiting. Just just thinking through a little bit more. The main one being John Tranter. I, I did have Tranter on my list um, to talk to. And I was really sad when I heard that he died. I did speak to somebody... A couple of people actually said this to me. They said, look, you know, it kind of wouldn't have been well enough for you to talk to for, for a few years there. I basically would have had to have started this show and then decide to interview John Tranter and, and that was never going to happen. So uh, it wasn't so much a missed opportunity as just like the opportunity was never really going to be there. But I have a few books here and I thought I can, I can actually still talk to him in a way. I can look at what he wrote down. I managed to get out a copy of the New Australian Poetry, the John Tranter Anthology that Ken mentioned. I've also got here a book that was written as a companion to that book called A Possible Contemporary Poetry, Interviews with 13 Poets from the New Australian Poetry, edited by Martin Jewell, interviews done by Martin Jewell. And then I have here an edition from 1975 of a journal called New Poetry, which was edited by Robert Adamson. In that conversation with Ken, he described this scene where Tranter and Adamson were vying for this title of Mr. Poetry. And looking through these three books, I can feel the energy of that conversation. It's not really even an antagonistic conversation. There is a lot of respect there, but there's there's critical energy. One of the things I notice most when I look back on writing from this time, even from the 80s and 90s really, is just how much appetite there was in Australian poetry for a bit of mudslinging. Like people were people were really happy to just call it as they saw it, just say exactly what they felt. They were not precious about each other's feelings. And I've talked about this before, I think, in interviews. This, this, was, a, this was a world in which these poets, the majority of whom were men, um, some of whom were women, they were up for a fight. They didn't see it as a bad thing. I guess I'll get to that when I come to the Adamson journal. But first I want to actually look at this introduction of Tranter's to the New Australian Poetry. What was he 
actually setting out to do. Because this thing of the generation of 68 has, has caused so much trouble. But it's interesting when, you, when I read this, it, it's a lot more gentle actually and a lot more conditional than I thought it would be. So it starts out like this. Okay, so this is the start of Trance's anthology, The New Australian Poetry, published in 1979. This anthology contains the work of 24 poets, mainly young writers who first came to prominence in the closing years of the 1960s, the generation of 68. They rose to public notice on the crest of a wave of poetry readings, underground magazines, underground is in quote marks, and a generally expressed antagonism to the established mainstream of poetry at that time, which they saw as too conservative. The readings attracted a large and varied audience, and the magazines, being cheap and open to almost anything in the way of new poetry, were an ideal breeding ground for ideas, argument, and experiment. So Trenta goes on to say, what was it about this loose group of writers that made it unique, and how did it come to have such an influence in so short a time and he breaks it down into kind of four main categories of influence the first of which is simply demographic there were more people that were better educated and this created an audience a well-educated audience ready to hear the poetry that was being written technology is the next factor it was cheaper to print things Things like the IBM Office golf ball typewriter that used a carbon ribbon. All this stuff made it easier and cheaper to make the little magazines that drove so much of this movement. Drugs is another factor that Tranter says were important. He says not in terms of quality or subject matter of the poetry, but a shift in attitudes. Attitudes to authority, to moral values. Then he gets to the big one, the big factor that really made the difference for this group as he saw it. But perhaps the strongest direct influence was from America, in the form of the new poetry that emerged there in the early 1960s. And here, the effect of two books was incalculable. Donald Allen's The New American Poetry and Donald Hall's Contemporary American Poetry. They were big, various, and completely new. And when they finally arrived in Australia in the mid-1960s, Donald Allen's book was banned for several years. They showed the local writers that there was a real and vigorous alternative to the world of Henry Lawson and A.D. Hope. He goes on to say, a large part of the energies of these writers went towards overthrowing what they saw as the tradition of conservatism that had dominated poetry in this country for many years. That fact about the, the Donald Allen anthology being banned in Australia blows my mind. I know that we had a, a censorship problem here for a number of decades, um, or maybe just years, I'm not entirely sure when it started and ended. And I know from listening to Pio talk just how difficult it was to get books from overseas and how vital certain bookshops were. And that is mentioned actually in Adamson's journal as well. He goes through and kind of says 
if you want this journal you can get it at this bookshop if you want that journal you can get it at that bookshop and there's this adorable little touch here opposite the contents page of new poetry it says members please watch this space a stroke means your subscription is due and there's a box next to it so basically <laughs> if you if your subscription to this journal was about to run out the people mailing out the journal were going to go through and like put a little check mark in this box and then you had to you had to send through a check it says when renewing please forward your check immediately to prevent discontinuity very labor intensive way to do things but um yeah so the bookshops the role of the bookshops was hugely important but you know if the, if a book was banned for a number of years they couldn't really do anything about it I, I guess the best you could probably do is write to someone in the u.s who would send you a copy why was it banned i have i have no idea i have no idea what it was that would have been so dangerous about this book but it was clearly dangerous enough that um, some Australian authority thought we better keep this thing out of the country. The other thing that strikes me about this, this time in this collection of poets that Tranter is trying to pull together here is that they're all so different. And he admits that. He says, the number of different styles is as great as the number of poets in this book. Greater, in fact, as many of them show a range of distinct modes within their individual contributions. And I noticed that as I was leaping through, that there are, th these poets don't really sound like each other. Michael Dransfield doesn't sound like Bruce Beaver. Bruce Beaver does not sound like Vicky Viticus. Robert Adamson does not sound like Jennifer Maiden. Tranter does not sound like Chris Hemsley. Forbes doesn't sound like Duggan. Alan Wern doesn't sound like anyone. <laughs> Um, yeah, everybody sounds so different. I'm, I'm going to read a couple of, of different ones just to give you a sense of this. This is a poem called For the Little Magazines by Nigel Roberts. Actually, I have to read two Nigel Roberts poems. I can't believe I nearly forgot this one. This first one's called Dialogue with John Forbes. Nigel, why at your age do you still play football? A test of self-physical fitness and a matter of duende. Jesus, then wait until you discover the private and existential terror of golf. Very good, very good. Um, okay, for the little magazines, this one's a bit longer. Sometime during 67, I read his poems and he read mine and that we knew of someone up the road who wrote that we should visit and did. And he read ours, and we read his, then had a smoke, and talked of why and where to publish, and then of our own magazine that we would publish, who or whatever we dug. And on the end papers of Donald Allen's New American Poetry, wrote that we had not come down to praise or put down Henry Lawson's ghost, or to dance on Ernmally's grave, but to be with poetry, we who saw poetry as a natural ancillary to those many other things. A poet today, a musician tomorrow, and a front row forward Saturday. That we had here contracted editorship, that looking for that which points to what is. Poetry is not an escape, 
but an appreciation of reality. Not an escape, but an appreciation of reality. See, I don't even think that half the poets in here would agree with that. I think some of them probably would say it was an escape. I'll read this one too. This is Alan Wern's Go On, Tell Me the Season is Over. But listen, there is moreover experience and example. In his sleep out, J.M. Hook mentions the words computer and motel. Or is she married? Left hand full. And to find out the origins of the surname Delahunty. Marvellous. There's so much to be done in Melb. Crossing spring from Carpentaria Place. Climbing Collins. In a morning of fog. Marking the spires of Scots and the Independent. To pause at Gibby's. Vienna, 25 cents. Tell me the season is yes. Another game. An other game. Is radio, old time, with dancing in the dark. Its author, anonymous now, who'd wish to say, say, enjoy your Octobers in these, our golden times. It need not be computer and motel. E.g. he worked on the computer, they stayed at a motel. But it's still to be done. Marvellous. So one of the other things I noticed looking through this is that this book has made at least one, maybe two people really angry. Someone's been through <laughs> in this in this poem, in um, Alan Wern's Go and Tell Me It's Over, someone's gone in and added the rest of the word to Melb, so Melbourne. There's so much to be done in Melbourne. And then they've added street after Collins, crossing spring from Carpentaria Place, climbing Collins Street in a morning of fog. Like they feel, they feel strongly that, that we shouldn't just be saying Melbourne Collins. Laurie Duggan has got a, a particularly harsh comment on his poem here called Sydney Notes, part of which reads, Oxford Street, a man and a woman try to get a 1940s radiogram into a 1968 Monaro above a shop, West Ride. No pianos. Ways of thought of Eastern peoples. Nakamura, circa 1959. So he's just noticing things and listing them as he sees it. And that no pianos is in all caps, sort of sitting by itself on one line. And next to that, somebody's just written in all caps with an exclamation mark, shit. <laughs> they hate it. The other thing about this book, though, that really creeped me out when I first started looking through it was that somebody's gone through with whiteout and just erased lines, stanzas, single letters in some places. And at first I thought, oh, was the library censoring this? Because the first time I noticed it was in John Forbes' Ode to Tropical Skiing. And it was the refrain, which is, it's a total fucking gas that is erased at the end every time it happens. But there's no pattern to it, actually. It just seems to be somebody who was feeling a little bit bored has just gone through and decided to deface the book, essentially. Somebody else has come in and for some of the poems, not all of them, reinstated the lines. It's a total fucking gas has been rewritten back into that poem. Oh, all right, I will read it. 
I'll read it. Ode to Tropical Skiing for Mandy Connell. After breakfast in the Philippines, I take a bath. And it's a total fucking gas. Enjoy that ice cream, Gerald. The sun sparkling on its white frostiness is the closest you'll get to St. Moritz. Racing up the tiny snowfields on the side of a pill as beside you, the young girl's mirrored goggles reflect all Switzerland, like a chocolate box at the speed of sound, and like the ashtray, he, she, you and it are a total fucking gas. Asleep in the milk bars, daylight savings and daylight savings annuls our tuxedo. <laughs> what the fuck? Daylight savings annuls our tuxedo. <laughs> And happy to breathe again, like a revived dance craze, we gulp fresh air. Our speeches to the telephone so various, so beautiful. Who loves at close range like they do through a tube? And when the sun polishes the wires gold, then invisible, a million cheer-up telegrams collapse in the snow, while Mandy and I have a glass of Coca-Cola as we fly past the moon. And after the piano goes to sleep in our arms, we wake up. And it's a total fucking gas. Was that a baby or a shirt factory? <laughs> what an idiot. <laughs> Was that a baby or a shirt factory? No one can tell in this weather. For though the tropics are slowly drifting apart and a vicious sludge blurs the green banks of the river, a chalet drifts through the novella where I compare thee to a surfboard lost in Peru. <laughs> I uh, should never have started this. Flotsam like a crate of strong liquor that that addles our skis. And when they bump, it's a total fucking gas. Ugh. <laughs> I'm crying. <laughs> There's one here. Yeah, this one, Vicky Viticus's poem uh, called Steve and the Big Smoke. The person with the whiteout has come in and taken out a whole the whole first part of a stanza, and then also a name. So this bit reads, I'm thinking, I like this woman, but I don't want sex with her. I say, I'm happy with, I'm happy with Sharon. I get what I need. I don't need to go to bed with you. Feeling like a heel passing back her roach. So the name, Sharon, has been whited out and then reinstated. It's totally bizarre. I don't really know what to make of it. I am tempted to go back through and fix all of it. And then part of me is thinking, hmm, maybe it's best to just leave it as it is. I don't know. I don't have to give the book back anytime soon. So let me know <laughs> what you think I should be. What's the, what's the moral right? What's the right thing to do there? So having heard a little bit from Tranter in his introduction there, I want to now quote from this interview that Martin Jewell did in 1976. So this is actually a couple of years before the New Australian Poetry comes out. New Australian Poetry came out in 1979. And, you know, like I can't, I can't not mention the fact that it's nearly 1980 and there are still only two women in this whole anthology, Vicky Viticus and Jennifer Maiden. In the interview collection, in A Possible Contemporary Poetry, Martin Jewell's interview collection, 
only Jennifer Maiden makes it in. Vicky Viticus was still around, at least when some of these interviews were taking place. Like, who knows? Maybe, maybe Martin Jewell reached out to her and she said no. I, I know that for me, that is very much the pattern. Um, every, every, almost without exception, every man that I ask to be on the show says yes. And about 50% of the women that I ask to come on the show say no. And about 10% of those who say yes, go on to say no, go on to um, pull out the last minute. It's, <laughs> I, I, I don't necessarily look at, that con- at the contents page here and think, oh, Martin Jewell was ignoring. I mean, there were, he only had two women to work with, right? So if Jennifer Maiden said yes, then given my run rate, Vicky Viticus was going to say no. That's just how it was going to be. And as I have discussed before, there are a million reasons for that. And they are not reasons that I lay at the feet of, of the female poets that I try to talk to. Anyway, let's, let's hear a bit more from Mr. Poetry, John Tranter. So this is quite a long, there are two interviews with Tranter in this. And the first one from 1976 is quite a long one. And Martin Jewell asks Tranter, just what do you think you are doing as a poet? And his answer is really like it's a, it's a huge swing. So Tranter's talking about taking a year off to go and live in Singapore. And he says that before that, I'd felt that I had a burden to write great poetry, that I was obliged to attempt to be Australia's greatest poet. Whether or not I would ever succeed wasn't particularly important. That year in Singapore got me out of that and let me get back into poetry in a much more relaxed way. I no longer felt that it was important to write an excellent poem. Of course it's important not to publish bad poetry. There's enough bad poetry around already, and if you're going to write and publish poems, they have to be good. Partly to get away from the rhetoric I'd developed, and partly to get away from the feeling that I had to write excellent poetry, I simply stopped reading and writing poetry for a year. When I came back to it, it was as though I'd come to poetry from the outside, and I felt I could write whatever I wanted to. To Martin Jules' credit, he doesn't let Tranter off the hook on that question of, well, what's a bad poem? He says, before I go on to take up that point about influences, one thing that you did touch on that might be worth pursuing is the question of what characterizes a bad poem for you. What makes a poem by yourself or anybody bad? So I attempted to answer this once. Tranter is a lot more declarative than me. (laughs) The first thing you say about a bad poem is that it is uninteresting. If a poem is uninteresting, it's bad, full stop. I mean by that, uninteresting to a person who has a reasonably open mind and a fairly broad knowledge of the world and literature. There are various other faults that poetry can have. I think the worst of them is an attempt to consciously imitate a tradition that has little point. And a lot of current Australian writing falls into that area. The attempt to write poems in the style of Roland Robinson or Kenneth Slessor or Douglas Stewart is a doomed one. I think those writers did what they did fairly well. I don't think they did anything particularly important. But to attempt to go on imitating them is a very bad thing. Of course you can say, 
I've written a poem like South Country, for example, by Slessor. It's almost as good as Slessor's poem. Therefore, it's a very good poem, isn't it? All I could say is, it would be a very bad poem because of that. There are other more worthwhile things to do with poetry. The excessive devotion to craft itself can be a major fault, in that it can allow a poet to produce a poem that looks like a poem, but is, in fact, only a piece of well-structured verse. That's a fault, in my opinion. A fault opposite to that, but equally bad, is to do without any of the structural or stylistic advantages of verse altogether, and to write what is merely rearranged prose, and to call it poetry. Prose can do a lot of very interesting things, but there is no point in writing a bit of prose and calling it a poem if it's not. There is an absolute distinction between an excellent piece of prose and an excellent poem. I think those are the worst things poetry can do. I, I feel so perceived. <laughs> I hate this bit about, um, uh, what is it? Allow a poet to produce a poem that looks like a poem, but is in fact only a piece of well-structured verse. Uh, I think I've been doing that. Oh, God. And then he does go on to ask him about influences, and I think Tranter's answer here is really bracing, to say the least. He's really on a roll now. For an Australian poet not to absorb any overseas influences is fatal, I think, because the poets we have had in Australia for the last hundred years have been fairly useless as an influence on a young writer, and their best work, such as it is, I think, has been done under the influence of overseas writing anyway. One can't imagine Slessor having written anything worth reading had he not read a number of French and German writers. The same applies to Francis Webb, and I think Slessor and Webb are the two poets in Australia that have, for me, a major amount of interest. There are no others I can think of offhand. <laughs> yeah, it's just those guys. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a little further on, he goes on to say some even more um, scathing things about the Australian tradition. So Trenta says, If ever there has been an Australian tradition, and despite the claims of anthologists such as Hesteline and Dutton, I would say that nothing as strong as a real tradition has developed here. If there have been traces of a tradition, it is a discontinuous one. But there is a particular and striking discontinuity between my generation and that immediately preceding it. There is an absolute break between those born before the Second World War and those born after, say, 1940. I think it has a lot to do with what you were influenced by during adolescence and early adulthood. Those early attitudes to writing seem to colour your work for the rest of your life. Those born in the decade before the war grew up in the Eisenhower years, and their main source of inspiration seems to be the English poetic establishment. My generation grew up just in time to be hit by Kerouac, Ginsburg, O'Hara, and the rest of the post-war American Revolution. This happened during our formative years, and we were spared the blight of the 1950s. We had a revolution ready-made for us in America, so to speak, and we could afford to ignore the conservative provincialism of our elders with an easy conscience, because we had proof that modernism worked, that in a new form it was alive and well in America. I just can't go past this bit without mentioning, like, what would it have been like if Rex Ingemel's 
and the Ginger Warabacks had not been squashed by AD Hope and the rest of the Canberra school, not been told that their project was ridiculous. And if we as a, as a nation of poets had taken a moment and thought, hang on a sec, <laughs> there has been a tradition here in this country for millennia. What if we look at that? Like, I don't know, it just it seems like such a, it's such a turning point. But we don't do that. AD Hope is like, no, nah, ridiculous, ridiculous idea. Uh, and we listen to him. And then, and then the next generation comes along and goes, well, we want to rebel against Hope. But to rebel against Hope, they don't, they don't go back to Rex Ingemel's idea. They look to the US. Okay, so before I attempt to, to tie all this together, God knows if that will work, question mark, um, I want to come to this, this journal, New Poetry, edited by Robert Adamson. As I said, this one came out in 1975. Let's do what we always do as poets and look at the contents page to begin with. We have... Uh, one, one woman, one woman. Yes. In terms of the poetry. Oh, hang on. Avril. Is she woman? Let me just check. Okay. Yeah, no, maybe two women. So Avril Fink and Sylvia Cantoresis are the two women who are published here. This is a fascinating contents page. So I found this about a month ago. We were out um, out in the country, out staying at Lake Eildon. Three couples, one dog and one beautiful little girl. Uh, and we had no internet and no phone reception. <laughs> so so by the time we got into town and I got to check out the secondhand bookshop, I was, I was pretty excited to be back in civilization, although I loved being out of range. I really loved it. It was three and a half days of almost no contact with the outside world and it was it was really beautiful and it felt like a great reset for my brain. That said, there is something about spending time with friends who you've known for over 20 years for three and a half days. I found that for me it's a bit like spending three and a half days with family. I started to revert to a previous version of myself who I don't really like very much. Yeah, but, you know, I got a great book out of it. New Poetry, edited by Robert Adamson. Um, yeah, so this contents page, right, it's, it's this bizarre mix of Australians and Americans. The Australians include um, Robert Adamson. Yes, he publishes his own poems in the journal. Uh, we've got we've got an article here by David Brooks about Galway Canal. That's actually why I bought it. I thought I really want to read that piece of David's. Joel Oppenheimer, Black Mountain School poet. Uh, Michael McClure, poet out of San Francisco. And the one and only Charles Bukowski, who's being published here alongside 
my great uncle, John Blight. <laughs> it is the weirdest feeling in the world to see a, a very extended family member being published alongside Bukowski. Like it's, it's totally bizarre. The Bukowski poems are really good, like really good. This one really made me think of Matt Wall, who will be on the show very soon. Uh, it, it's a simple idea, but it's just really well done, I think. So this is Charles Bukowski's Nothing is as effective as defeat. Always carry a notebook with you wherever you go, he said. And don't drink too much. Drinking dulls the sensibilities. Attend readings. Note breath pauses. And when you read, always understate underplay. The crowd is smarter than you might think. And when you write something, don't send it out right away. Put it in a drawer for two weeks, then take it out and look at it and revise, revise, revise again and again. Tighten the lines like bolts holding the span of a five-mile bridge. And keep a notebook by your bed. You will get thoughts during the night, and these thoughts will vanish and be wasted unless you notate them. And don't drink. Any fool can drink. We are men of letters. For a guy who couldn't write at all, he was about like the rest of them. He could sure talk about it. Yeah, again, I feel I feel slightly attacked. The Joel Oppenheimer poems are really terrible. Uh, really boring, really nonsensical. I sort of found that to be true of a lot of the Black Mountain poets that I read in this anthology I got the other week. Um, yeah, they were all very seduced by their own, like, not all of them, but a lot of them seemed to be very seduced by how how beautiful their um, word choices were, but they didn't make a great deal of sense. And then, yeah, a whole bunch of poems by Adamson. <laughs> like, it's just so... It, it's just amazing to me. He's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I'll have pages 56 through to 64 for my poems. And then what I really wanted to get to here with this journal, and I, I read this while we were at Lake Eildon. I was sitting by the fire and I was reading this thing and I kind of wanted to like turn to someone and be like, can you believe this? Oh my God, you have to listen to this but uh, it was vintage poetry gossip, what, what Jonathan would refer to as some vintage shit and nobody would have understood or cared. But to me, this is amazing. So there is this section at the end, notes and comments, Robert Adamson. Again, we get, what have we got here? Page 76 through to 88. He's just, he's just basically rambling. He seems to get drunker as it goes on and make less and less sense. But yeah, I just, I just want to read some choice excerpts from this because he's got hot takes on everybody, all the other poetry editors who are working at the time. So he's got a huge problem to start with and he needs to get up his chest about the fact that none of the journals at the time look any good um, like the covers the art that they're using he just he doesn't like any of it and he says I'm constantly amazed at this kind of thing a good six months before the web issue of Poetry Australia Overland number 60 appeared 
the cover this time by the painter Fred Williams. It is a good painting and worked perfectly on the cover. I thought after this, editors of the other magazines would take the hint. But if anything, there seemed to be a reaction against it. Westerly remained as drab, Mianjin as functional, Quadrant as garish, and Makar as cheap-looking. Maybe I'm being romantic, presuming that editors do look at what's happening around them. <laughs> That's just a, like this is the third paragraph, so, and he's he's only just started his drink. So he likes Overland. He says Overland 60 is one of the finest magazines to come out in the last decade. The entire issue is bound together with such force that it's taken me six months to fully appreciate it. He's he's into that. This issue of Overland is a stunning example of what can be done with a literary magazine. Every editor should look at it carefully. He talks here about where to get it. Overland doesn't have as many retail outlets as it deserves in Sydney. It is available at Abbey's, or you can subscribe directly by sending $4 to Overland. Doesn't feel the same about Westerly. About Westerly, he says, The editor is almost totally invisible, and a general feeling of anonymity often flattens Westerly, to the point where it becomes difficult to tell one issue from another. And then he says, Westerly is a peculiar magazine. I always look forward to each issue, but I'm never excited or even angered by it when I read it. It has a friendly feel about it, but for the most part, it's a rather bland competency. In most cases, it's all too careful. And in particular, the poetry is very tame and safe stuff. It has that terrible sameness to it all. Like, can you imagine? (laughs) Can you imagine? Nobody would say this today. This is totally nuts to me. I was just sitting there being like, somebody, Robert Adamson is sledging Westerly. And then he goes on to say, I wanted to say something more constructive about Westerly, but looking again at the latest issue, notice A.D. Hope's poetry is journalism again. Hope has always been a strange critic, but in this article he is in a state of panic. His argument is absolute nonsense. I will reply to it in detail in the next issue. Finally, Westerly's cover designs and photographs are very ordinary, and although they are printed on some quality papers, the covers remain commonplace. Alright, so that's dealt with Westerly. Um, Mianjin. Okay, what does he say about Mianjin? When Jim Davidson introduced himself in a fanfare of newspaper interviews as the new editor of Mianjin, we had high expectations. His first issue, 175, did seem when it first appeared to show a wider scope, except for the poetry, though in retrospect it seems that a predictable line was taken. He sort of gets distracted after that for a few paragraphs and then he sort of softens and says, I think Davidson is a good editor and Mianjin is still in a fluxive state. If this magazine can be pulled together again, its new editor will do it. Then he comes to Quadrant, unsurprisingly, really um, sticks a knife in when it comes to Quadrant. (laughs) Quadrant has gone from bad to worse. Quadrant's huffing and puffing has been good for business and has given buffoons like Richard Packer and Graham Rowlands enough rope to hang themselves with. In the first New Look Monthly, Quadrant points out that it only asks that the iconoclasts show talent and when they do, it will publish them eagerly and the more quickly for being monthly. Then he starts laying into this particular article that Quadrant have published about Tom Wolfe. And he says, this is another article that could be replied to in great detail. It doesn't relate anything about contemporary painting or criticism to me at all. 
so I'll only make a few points about Quadrant's mindlessness. And then because Quadrant publishes artwork as well, he says, the most insane thing about the Quadrant article is that almost as proof, there are 20 paintings reproduced in black and white. Paintings by Nolan, Stella, Newman, Lewis, Pollock, and so on. What do the editors mean by this? Some kind of practical joke? Will they publish one of James Macaulay's sonnets next month with 10 lines deleted? I mean, they probably didn't have enough money to, <laughs> to publish them in colour. <laughs> okay, so he, he really likes Southerly. He says, Southerly of all the established magazines in Australia is for me simply the best. Because I am a poet and still struggling with the editorship of new poetry, these two areas of Southerly's existence are my bias in this judgment. Professor Wilkes gives poetry its proper place, and in the last 13 years, has, he has published a more extensive range of poetry and critical work on poetry than any other journal or magazine in the country. His work as an editor, since Kenneth Slesser's resignation as Southerly's editor on March the 7th, 1962, has been a great achievement. And then he says, he starts contradicting himself, Southerly doesn't try for artistic cover designs or lavish book design. The journal works as it is. It is a seriously true magazine, and its sole and distinctive merit is the high quality of the content. Maybe there's a point in that for me engine, for all the literary magazine editors, but more than likely not. And then he says, Southerly is available at Abbey's Bookshop or direct subscription, $8 for four issues. Then he starts talking about book reviewers. He doesn't like Robert Gray. He doesn't like David Maloof. He doesn't like Rodney Hall. He, he says, Thomas Shapcott and Bruce Beaver are two book reviewers that frustrate me in every way. And then at the end, he says this, maybe it's John Tranter. Tranter has upset almost every poet in the country at some stage or another. I think he is the best poet and critic we have. He suffers for it though. Is it that Tranter is bigger than the rest of us? Why is it that one complimentary grunt from Tranter is worth a thousand bravos from the Greys, Murrays, Shapcots, Beavers, Pringles, Porters? Like I said, I think there was I think there was respect there and like a, a real appetite for somebody who would tell you when your work was good and when it was bad. Bringing it all the way back to Ken, there's a paragraph here. I mean, I, God knows whether Ken's ever seen this. Um, I, I can send it to you, Ken, if you would like. Uh, there's a paragraph all about the journal that Ken mentioned at the start of our interview called Magic Sam. So by this point, as I say, Robert Adamson is, he's really on a roll <laughs> and he's having a go at everyone. There seems to be some, like there's this in-joke here that I don't really get, but it sounds really savage. The only Melbourne-based small magazine that shows any signs of activity is Robert Hughes Foundations. Hughes has set himself very high standards but if he can get the support and keep his head down, then foundations might fill the place left by Fitzrot that has just gone away. And then he says, no, seriously. <laughs> so, so does that mean that Fitzrot was some kind of like um, object of ridicule at this point? He says, no, seriously. Hughes needs the support of his fellow poets in Melbourne and has a good editorial map worked out. 
Is Melbourne as fragmented as it seems from here? So obviously he's, he's the man in Sydney. But then he goes on to say, A new magazine has come this month in Sydney. It's called Magic Sam. And although its title sounds like a toy, its contents and production are not bad at all. I'd like to see another six issues or so before deciding to evaluate it. I do think it's well worth looking at. The production is first class. Magic Sam's editor shows the Melbourne mags that a Ronio machine can be controlled and that it's not all that hard to type stencils so that the end product is legible. The cover and binding are really beautiful. Ken Bolton is the editor and the address is box 164 E. Wentworth Building, City Road, Darlington, Sydney, 2008, New South Wales. Some of the contributors are John Jenkins, Lorraine Roche, Vicky Viticus, Kerry Leaves and Ray Desmond. <laughs> Kerry Leaves and Ray, I shot the Albatross Jones. Vicky Viticus has the most exciting poems of hers for a long time in Magic Sam. Again, there's no critical work or books reviewed. The small so-called free press magazines are much worse than the newspapers and the established magazines in the standard of their critical essays. That is when they do include essays or book reviews. I will just totally name drop here and say that I did get an email from John Jenkins this week saying that he listened to and enjoyed the episode with Ken. I got a bunch of lovely, lovely feedback that Ken was kind enough to send on to me. Uh, yeah, I feel pretty pretty damn chuffed i think having having leafed through those three books and i haven't read any of them as closely as i probably should have before i started talking about them but i'm starting to feel like i can see i can see the landscape as it was at that time and i can just imagine how how much energy it would have taken for someone like Vicky Viticus or for Jennifer Maiden or for Pam Brown or for Gig Ryan um, for for women writing poetry at that time to just carve out some space like to be taken seriously to not just be a token to not just be there on a contents page so that a, a journal would seem legitimate in some way and I'm also as, as much as I have a, a lot of reservation about just the sheer volume of some of these men and I mean in terms of like the amount of work they they put out and um the, the grandstanding essentially that they did I suppose I'm also I'm also open to reframing what I have seen up until this point as as a kind of a bombastic tendency to just like cut somebody else down or, or throw criticism at someone for the sake of it I'm actually starting to see that maybe this was not just appreciated but like kind of essential to the way things functioned at that time you know i i am always thinking about that ben etherington piece that came out in the sydney review of books about 10 years ago and about you know the way that he talked about that paragraph getting cut out of the southerly 
review, that piece that, that Jeff Page put together on obscurity, um, and his line, conflict, ah, turn it off, <laughs> you know, and it's like, I, I feel like I can see when I look back at this stuff, is like, it's not that Australian poets have always been conflict averse, there was definitely a time when conflict was part of the deal. Was that a good thing? Was it a productive thing? It seems like maybe in some ways it was, and in other ways it probably was unbearable and exhausting and like really fucking stressful, I can imagine. Um, yeah, I certainly wouldn't, I think I've said this before too, like I certainly wouldn't go back to that time. Have I just created more loose threads? Do I want more conflict? The ability to criticize without it becoming a crisis? Bring back the biff? Is that what I'm saying? I think I've just asked more questions. <laughs>